I have always loved that song and the reminder of it is to our lives that he is worthy of all the worship and praise that we can offer him with our lives. And so what we're going to offer to God over the next few minutes here is we're going to offer him our attention to his word, right? To see what it is he has for us to learn from his word today um, and, and that, we may, that we may be changed, be more like him, that our faith uh, may be deepened in him, that we may know him uh, more and more each day. So I invite you today to turn in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 11, if you haven't already. Some of you have been here um, for some time. You, you probably just went right to John. He said, well, we left off in 10 last week, so we're probably in 11 this week. You're right, okay? We're back today looking at the gospel of John and seeing that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And today, as we get into chapter 11, we're going to get into something that if you've, if you've been around church and you've been, you've been in the Word of God, you've read the Word of God or heard messages preached, you, you probably are familiar, at least in part, with John chapter 11 and the account that takes place there. Um, but um, as, as we look, go through the next several weeks here, uh, there's a lot here for us to unpack and really see what happens in the life of Lazarus and how Jesus, his ministry, how that relates to that. And what we see in the first 16 verses today is we're going to see the preeminence of God's glory. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what goes on in this world or in our lives. The first and foremost thing is the glory of God. And that is what God seeks most of all is his own glory. And we'll talk about that as we go throughout the message today and see uh, what, what, we, what we learned through that or about that here in this passage. Let's read John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, so we can understand the context of where we are. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So so when he heard that he was sick, He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I must go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. When Jesus, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for the word of God that you have preserved and we hold in our hands today. Thank you that we have time set aside in our service where we can open it, we can read it, we can seek to understand it more by the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray that today... 
you would help us to see in all things the preeminence of God's glory. You would help us to see that in everything you do, it is for our good and your glory, and that the, the capstone of our lives is that we would live in a way that would give you the honor and glory that you deserve. And help us then to see that everything we go through in life, the good and the bad, is used in your perfect plan to bring glory and honor to yourself. We ask that you would speak to us today. You would quiet our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you would help the messenger today not to get in the way of what you would like to do here in and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. The foremost goal in all of life is the glory of God. It is the reason behind everything God does. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is holy, and therefore he is worthy of all the honor and glory that is due his name. Everything here on this earth and in the universe around us exalts and glorifies God. And since God is creator and ruler over all, everything he does brings him this most deserved glory. David tells us, that the very creation itself resounds with this purpose when he wrote in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Isaiah relates to the wandering nation of Israel that their created purpose was the glory of God in Isaiah 43, verse 7, where he wrote, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Your very person, the very being that you are, you were created in the image of God that you may bring glory to God. The plan of salvation, which was set forth by God to redeem fallen sinners to a right and eternal relationship with God, was set forth for the glory of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God, as he wrote to them about their salvation in Jesus Christ. But the greatest expressions of God's glory were seen in the incarnation of God the Son, Jesus Christ. While at other times God has given veiled revelations of himself and and we can see God's glory through his plans and his creation, Jesus is the fullest revelation of the glory of God. That's why we read in John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did brought glory to God. Why? Because he is God. And since the chief goal of God is to glorify himself as is proper and right, everything God does works to that end, to glorify himself. This includes the hardships and troubles that may come into our own lives. One author said it this way, you will encounter no situation in life in which God cannot be glorified. Now, this is something that we resonate with more in life when, things, when it feels like everything's going well. 
But it's very hard to see that in the moments of darkness. When our loved ones suffer sickness and face death, the debt piles up. Work becomes a grueling chore because of horrible conditions. When our marriages crack and struggle, when our children wander and stray and more, we don't see the preeminence of God's glory in those moments. Instead, we often ask ourselves questions such as, how do I get out of this? Or why me? Or perhaps, where is God now? But the truth of the matter is, God is there and he is not silent. He is working for his glory in all things. And to the one who knows Jesus Christ as Savior, God is working all things together for their good. And he will use those things to bring us closer to himself if we will trust him and follow him. To the one who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, these things point him to the Savior and his only hope for true and lasting peace, Jesus Christ. And here, in John chapter 11, some of Jesus' closest earthly friends face a horrible situation. They face the looming death of a family member. And Jesus shows his disciples, his friends, and us today how God's glory is preeminent in even these things, and in so doing, we are called to trust God and seek his glory in our own lives. And what you see in this passage is because God's glory is promised and promoted in all he does, I can trust and follow God no matter what I face. The premise is quite simple. If God seeks his glory that he is due alone above all else, and he does, I can trust him. If God is truly the all-powerful one who deserves all of our praise, and he is, I can trust him. And I can, in my own life, no matter what is going on, whether it be good or bad, whether I feel great or crummy, whether I know what's going to happen or I have no clue, I can seek the glory of God in my life. I can trust him. And I can trust that he will do what is best for my good and his glory. And so, Today, we're just going to look at those 16 verses we read just a minute ago, which are really just the beginning of this account in John chapter 11, probably the part that, we are very, that we're very familiar with and we, we want to get to, we're not going to get to for a couple of weeks. We're not going to get to the actual sign that Jesus does, but we're going to see what happens before and how this week, how in these first few verses, God's glory is exalted in everything we go through in life and how that informs our trust of him. And it begins in verses 1 through 6 with the perfect knowledge that is seen in Jesus Christ. And in verses 1 and 2, we have the scene of of the chapter, the setting of where we are, when it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now once again, we don't know how much time has elapsed between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. We know at the end of chapter 10, Jesus really for the most part has left the public eye. He is ministering in the area that's known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. We read about that in John chapter 1 and verse 28 where John the Baptist first ministered. And there 
As we read at the end of of chapter 10, you can back up there to chapter 10, verse 42, we read, and many believed in him there. He's having quite a, what you and I might call a successful ministry, right? That That people are coming to him, and instead of turning away from him, they're believing in who he is as the Son of God and the Savior. This was an area that was removed from Jerusalem, and really the area, that southern part of Israel known as Judea, where the Jewish religious leaders' influence was strongest. And he left that area because they were seeking to kill him, and it was not God's time for him to die yet. While he is there, there are others that he knows that are now in trouble. We learn here at the outset of this chapter of the one who will be the recipient of the sign that John uses as the capstone of his seven signs. So throughout the book of John, he records seven signs. Now, now eight if you include the resurrection, okay? But these seven signs that, that Jesus does for other people, and, and the seventh one is here in John chapter 11, and it really is. It's not the last miracle that Jesus ever did, but it really is the greatest miracle, we could argue, right? If not one of the greatest and it, and it really pushes forward John's whole goal here to help us to understand, to help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we see here that really once again, Lazarus is not going to be the main, the main character of this account. Now, he is the one, you know, it's, this whole account is occasioned by the sickness and death of this man named Lazarus. But the, really the main character of John chapter 11 is who the main character is throughout this whole book, and that is Jesus. Lazarus was a common name at this time. It's a shortened form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, and that name means God has helped. John also then identifies more about this man and his family. We read that Lazarus lived in Bethany, which is in the area of Judea. The city of Bethany is different, obviously, than the one where Jesus is, which is known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's a city that's on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And it's really, to help you understand maybe where it is, it's less than two miles away from the city of Jerusalem. John then further identifies that this Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. Now, these two ladies have not yet been mentioned in John's gospel. And in fact, John identifies Mary here. He says, well, this is the same Mary who would anoint Jesus and wipe his feet with her, with her hair. And by the way, just so you have a point of reference, okay, at this time in Jesus' life, in the chronological way that, that John is recording things, that actually hasn't happened yet. John's going to talk about that in John chapter 12. So what's the assumption here? Well, John wrote his gospel later than anybody else, and so what he assumes is everyone who reads this has already read the other gospels, and they're familiar with who Mary is. Or, if you're not familiar with who Mary is, read through the gospel again, and you'll know the next time you come through, oh yeah, that's the one he talks about in John chapter 12. Well, they wouldn't have said that when they first read it, but that's how we say it, okay? Mary and Martha's connection to Jesus was recorded in the other gospel accounts, And Mary's act of service to Jesus has already been recorded in the other gospel accounts. And what we understand is that this family was was special to Jesus. He had spent personal time with them. And now, Lazarus is sick. And so, so sick that he is drawing near to death. And, And you can almost see the scene that unfolds, right? That they're there in Bethany, their their brother is sick. And it's almost as if they say, if only Jesus were here, 
right? I mean, if you knew Jesus as well as they did and you knew what Jesus had done, wouldn't that be something you would say? And if only he were here, he could heal him and he wouldn't die. He would, he'd be up walking around, right? He'd be up doing whatever he normally does. And so we see that out of this comes a message they send to Jesus to inform him of their trouble. We read that in, in verse 3. We see the message here. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, from the city of Bethany, where, they, where, the, where these three lived, to where Jesus was would be at least a day's travel. So the sisters wished Jesus to know what is going on, and so by way of personal message, they inform him. Now notice, it's interesting here, the message that they send does not include a request, a demand, an expectation. It's just, they're not seeking to coerce Jesus necessarily into anything. They, they simply wish him to know what has happened so they can wish to know maybe then what he might do. Now, this is not to say they didn't expect anything to happen, Right? They, they express to Jesus uh, their, their appeal, and it's an it's appeal in, for his love for Lazarus. It is evident in Jesus' ministry that some, like this family, felt the personal, cherishing love of Jesus more than others maybe did in his ministry. Because the word that's used here when it says, whom you love, a lot of times in the Bible you, you see that word, that Greek word agape love, which talks about a, a selfless sacrificial love. That's not this word here. The word here is, is a phileo love, which speaks of the love of friendship and affection, is what it's talking about. It's a very personal, you know, we have a relationship with each other. These friendships that Jesus had with certain people really aren't fleshed out in full in the Gospels, but certainly he, like any other person, <clears throat> had people that he was closer to than others. And that's what makes Jesus, by the way, uniquely qualified to be our Savior. He's 100% God, but also 100% man. He experiences all the things that we experience. When you think about that, think about the friendships you've had in your life and the struggles of friendships perhaps you've had in your life and understand that Jesus as your Savior, Jesus as the one who came as God in the flesh, he's lived through that. He's, He's been there. Now, he is without sin but he shares in our experiences. At the same time, this is not to say that Jesus formed some type of clique with people. He still showed self-sacrificial love to all. But in this, this friendship love for them, Jesus reveals that there is a greater purpose in these things that are going on in their lives. In verse 4, we see that purpose. It says, then Jesus, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Contrary to what some may say, God's will for his people is sometimes sickness and even death. That is part of God's plan in our lives at times. Sickness and death are part of the reality of a fallen world that we live in. But even these things can be used for the glory of God. Of God. And here, Jesus reveals that Lazarus' illness will serve a glorious purpose. In fact, Jesus says that the final outcome of this sickness will not mean death for Lazarus. Now, I want to make a point here and help us understand that Jesus does not say 
that Lazarus will not die. Because if you've read the story or you paid attention this morning as we read, what happens? Lazarus, he dies, right? Jesus indicates here that the final outcome of this illness, though, will not be death. And there's a difference there. Instead, the course that this illness will run will culminate in the glory of God and the glorification of himself as the Son of God. Death will not have the final victory in this instance. And this is not unlike what Jesus said in John chapter 9 about the blind man's condition when his disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he said that this man wasn't blind because of sin, but that, he might, that God might be glorified through these things. In his love. Jesus sought to glorify God before his disciples and all of the people who were involved. And in so doing, he would continue to grow their faith in himself. And see, here's something we need to understand. That God's definition and God's expression of love isn't always what we think it should be. As humans, we look at this. We look at the situation and we think, well, the, the only way. If God was really loving, he would just heal him, whether he goes to him or he's from afar. That's the only way it could be. Because in our minds, that's what love is, right? But as Warren Wiersbe said, God's love is not a pampering love, it is a perfecting love. And in our minds, we equate love with people doing things for us. Or we equate love with people giving us things, or this, or that. But God's love isn't always, he gives you what you want. God's love is he does for and gives you what you need. And here, Jesus is seeking to grow the faith of his disciples and those that he loves. And so, it will play out in the way that is perfect for that. God's love for us does not mean we will always be sheltered from the problems and hardships of life. And indeed, Many Christians lead difficult and hard lives. To be sure, sometimes those difficulties and hardships are brought on or worsened by our foolish and sinful choices and actions. Don't you agree with that? I mean, sometimes we, we choose our sin, and it has consequences. Other times... These things are allowed in the providence of God that he may be glorified so that we, he may continue to mature us in himself. Jesus saw the greater purpose in the sickness and subsequent death of Lazarus, the glory of God and the glory of himself as the son of God. And he could see that because he is God and he is, all, and he is omniscient. He knows all things. In our lives today, you and I, cannot see the future. I mean, how many of us have said that? Well, if we could only see the future, right? If we could only see what would happen. Honestly, if we're very honest, we have trouble understanding the present most of the time. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you are walking in obedience with God, you can rest in Him and His work. You can trust that he is using all things for your good and his glory. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Remember, by the way, this is a promise to believers. This is a promise to those who know God. So if we do not know God as our Savior, that promise, there's no power there in that promise. 
It doesn't mean that everything's going to feel great in life, but we can trust that we know God and his purposes. We can trust, we can seek his help to live for the glory of God even when the road ahead is hard to see. And with this message of hope, the messenger then presumably returns and we see Jesus' next actions. And in verses 5 and 6, we may wrinkle our heads a little bit and scratch our heads and try to understand what's going on here. And we'll talk through that because we see the delay that takes place in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. John reinforces here once again the love that Jesus has for this family. And in this love, we see that Jesus delayed his departure. And and again, just on the surface as human beings, we think that's not how that verse should go at all, right? Now, Jesus loved them. We, read, we, we want to read Jesus loved them, so he hurried off down the road and went there and healed Lazarus before he died, right? That's, that's like the, the, the human standard version, right? That's what we want to read. But that is not what was best for the glory of God and was best for them. And Jesus knows that as God. And when we understand that God's purpose is for his children's growth and maturity, we can see the unfolding of God's plan even in such a delay. And here we observe an interesting thing. Many commentators believe that where Jesus was, as we said, he was about a day's travel away from the city of Bethany where Lazarus was. So that means, by the way, by the time the messenger headed home, Lazarus was probably already dead. And in fact... It is quite possible that while the messenger was on the way, Lazarus had died. So it's quite possible, given the time frame, that by the time the messenger reached Jesus and said, the one that you love, this messenger, is sick, that he was already dead back in Bethany. And Jesus, as God, knew this. But now he waited until the perfect time in God the Father's plan to travel to Bethany. And if Jesus was in de- in, I'm sorry, if Lazarus was indeed dead by the time the messenger returned home, we wonder what effect Jesus' reply had on them. I mean, just imagine he returns home, so it'll be two days, right? He's, he's gone for a day and a day back. He says, Jesus says this sickness will not end in death, and he's already dead. I mean, that, that causes your heart to wonder, does it not? It causes you, well, okay, what's going to happen, right? Because obviously something happened here. Jesus' delay would instead force Mary and Martha to trust Jesus all the more to strengthen their faith in him. It would also, by the way, when you get later into this chapter, okay, if you haven't read all of this chapter, I'm going to spoil the ending for you, okay? It would also leave no doubt in people's minds that when Lazarus is raised back to life, he had been dead for four days. There's no chance he was alive. And we see once again that Jesus operates on God's timetable and not man's. This is evident in the previous passages where we read that the religious leaders sought to stone Jesus, they sought to kill him, and it it could not happen. Why? Because it wasn't his time. His hour had not come. It is apparent here, as Jesus does not rush to Lazarus, though he gave this great word of hope and the glory of God, that, that things work on God's timing, not man's timing. Please understand that a delayed response from God is not a message of cruelty. 
we live in a fast-paced, instant world. I mean, you can pick this thing up and you can download all sorts of things in no time flat, right? And we see in our world, delay is an enemy. We grow very impatient very quickly. And, and I chuckle at that because, you know, I grew up with dial-up internet in my house, you know, as a kid. And you download nothing. You know, it took forever, right, to download anything. Now I get frustrated. I'm like, I can't believe this thing won't download, you know, no, 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 you know. And it's like, goodness gracious, chill out for 30 seconds. I'm talking to myself, all right. But, I mean, we see that in even things like we, we pick up our phone and we text somebody, right? We send somebody a text message. And, by the way, you understand that the text message was designed to give people the opportunity to reply as they had time, right? It's not an immediate thing. You're all laughing because you're like, yeah, we don't use it that way, okay? <laughs> because what happens when someone doesn't text you back? You get, well, are they mad at me, right? Are they upset? Are they ignoring me? Are they... We run through all of these things, Right? Because in our minds, we're wired, right? It's got to be instant, right? And I'll just tell you on a personal note, okay, if you need something instant, just call me, right? I mean, that's what I say to people. I'll pick up the phone, right? Unless I got something else going on, I can't. But we're so hardwired to, well, I got to send this off and I got to get a reply and I got to do this and I got to do this. And so when we don't hear something from God, we treat Him the same way. We pray, right? And we look for an answer. We come to him with an, even an urgent, sensitive request, and yet God may not always answer us right away. He may delay, and our reaction says a lot about our hearts in that moment. Why is it that we cannot wait on the Lord? We are ever fickle, are we not? We struggle to trust our sovereign God, our omnipotent creator, and our gracious redeemer. And as David records in the Psalms, God, what does God say? Be still and know that I am God. A delay in the timing of God is not a message of cruelty. It is an invitation to continue to rest and trust and wait in him. And yet, God continues, even in our impatience, to graciously grow us in himself. He continues to do what is best for our good and his glory. How many of you are glad that God doesn't give up on you when you fail? Yeah. Because we've all done that, right? We probably did that yesterday or this morning before we left for church, right? He knows and he remembers who we are. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Whatever you may be facing in your life right now, remember that you have a God set on the preeminence of his glory in your life. He wants to glorify himself before you, and he longs for you to glorify him before others. And if you do not know him as your Savior, he seeks to show you his glory that you may trust him. And if you do know him as your Savior, he continues to refine you in his perfecting work of sanctification. Jesus' delay in this passage is part of his actions of glorifying God and growing his disciples' faith in himself. And so now we see the actions that he begins to take in order to go to Bethany. You not only see here the perfect knowledge that Jesus has of all of these things, but you see also the providential actions that he takes. These are found in verses 7 through 16. And in verses 7 and 8, 
we see that there is a deterring concern that takes place here. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? So two days after receiving the message of Lazarus' illness, and now presumably three days after Lazarus' death, Jesus declares to his disciples, it's time to return to Judea. And this declaration of intention to move draws great concern from the disciples, so much so that, so that what they're saying here, they're seeking to deter him from going. You know, it says here, the disciples said in him, you can almost see, right, these guys looking around at each other, and let's just be honest, it's probably Peter, like, hey, Peter, it's time to say something, right? Because he was always willing to do that. Hey, why would you want to go back there? Remember, at the end of chapter 10, what we just read, right? They wanted to stone him there in the temple. They, 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 there was no, okay, let's wait it out. They had made a decision. And so they ask him, why would you consider such a move? The area that they're in, by the way, now has proven to be quite fruitful. It's full of people where many believe on Jesus. Showing hearts and souls that are hungry for the righteousness of God. Why would he want to leave a fruitful ministry for a place that would put him in imminent danger? The disciples fear that his return to that area will engender another hostile response like he found at the end of chapter 10. But the disciples still do not understand that one day Jesus will have to suffer and die. That is part of God's plan. That is why he came the first time. To be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. However, Jesus once again now gives them a lesson in the plan of God and God's timing. We, we saw one lesson already in that, that God doesn't work on our schedule. That's why Jesus delayed, right? Because the plan of God, it was not his time to go. We see this yet again when it comes to his own life and mission from God the Father. In verses 9 and 10, we see deity's confidence. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus, as God, has complete confidence that traveling to Judea will not put him in harm's way. And he illustrates this with a picture that the disciples here would understand. And so I'm going to try to explain to us very briefly here the background of this so that we can understand what Jesus is saying here. The Jewish day was divided up in that time into 12 hours, okay? That was, that was the daytime. Now, unlike today, the length of those hours could vary because of how much daylight you have. Okay, now you understand, right? You understand how that works in our world. We live here in Michigan, and during the summer, we have really long days, and during the winter, we have really short days, right? Well, that was the same thing here, that the bottom line was that they would always divide it up into 12 segments that they would call hours. They would have 12 hours of daylight every day. And that was the time in which the work had to be done, even if the hour was longer or shorter. They don't have lights. They, don't, you know, they have torches and those sorts of things. But you only have so much daylight to get things done. At night, Jesus talks about here... And we understand, again, because of the conditions, it wouldn't be safe. And the work could not be accomplished because the light wouldn't be available to them. So even though the length of the Jewish hour then might be stretchable throughout the year, there was an allotted amount. There were 12 hours in the day. 
No one could add hours and no one could take away hours from that time. In the same way, what Jesus is saying here, no one could add to or take away from the time that was allotted to Jesus to accomplish the work that God the Father had sent him to do. The period of Jesus' earthly ministry was set by God the Father. Now, we can look back on it and see what that period was, but at that time they didn't know that, right? I mean, only Jesus as God knows that. As long as there was still time, as long as the time for Jesus' sacrifice had not come, nothing would hinder Jesus from doing that work. So once that time had ended, Jesus' death would come. That's why you read, as, we, as you get farther into the Gospels, you read in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew when his hour had come, right? It is significant in God's plan that this miracle, by the way, in John chapter 11, will continue to push forward the resolution of the Jews to kill Jesus, bringing the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and the culmination of his redemptive work. And so, but the point Jesus makes here, and he shares with his disciples, is that that we can go to Judea because the time has not come. There's still light to do the work. He's confident. Because he is omniscient God. And he wants his disciples to trust in him as well. And so now he gives them more information of where they're going to go and and why. And we see death's reality here in verses 11 through 15. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said it to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So Jesus now tells his disciples what has happened. Lazarus has died, and what he's telling them is he's going there to perform a great sign. However, he speaks first to his disciples in a word picture here, when he tells them that, that Lazarus has fallen asleep or, or Lazarus uh, uh, sleeps and I go there to wake him up. The disciples then mistook his words to mean that Lazarus was resting, presumably recovering from his illness, right? Because if you remember back, what did Jesus say? This will not end in death. So that, that in their minds, well, he's resting. He's, he's getting better. That only adds then to their confusion and their concern. I mean, okay, why then do we need to go to Judea, the hostile area, just to wake a guy up who's sleeping, right? That's what he's got two sisters for. I mean, Jesus said Lazarus wouldn't die, so there's nothing to worry about. And once again, the disciples struggle to understand what Jesus says, and perhaps we can understand at least partially some of why this is. It wasn't necessarily uncommon in Jesus' day to refer to death as sleep. I mean, you read the Old Testament genealogies, right? I know those are everybody's favorite passages to read, okay? Speaking of sleep, right? But they, they, what they say in there? Well, so-and-so slept with his fathers. And what does it, that statement mean? That, that they, they died, right? And when it says that, the idea that one would be awakened from that sleep never occurred to anyone, right? Because they're dead. The disciples, like so many other people, fear death. But Jesus offers them a different perspective on death, one that's filled with hope. And it is something that no one but Jesus could offer to them. 
it is significant here, okay? I want you to see this in this verse. Jesus says in verse um, 11, okay? I want to I highlight some words as we go through here. Our friend Lazarus, okay? Our friend Lazarus, Jesus says, but then notice the change, okay? Our friend Lazarus sleeps, and he says, but I go that I may wake him up. This is not something that anyone can do. This is only something Jesus, as God, can do. And as you continue on in the New Testament, you'll see there's a picture that develops in those writings that those who know Jesus Christ and die, the picture is those who have fallen asleep. Now, lest you get mixed up, okay, or you read things, this is not some mystic soul sleep that people talk about, okay? Instead, those who know Jesus close their eyes in death on this earth only to awaken in eternity with God. And that is a glorious hope. And here, the power and glory of God is magnificently predicted that Lazarus, a man who has physically passed away, will be raised from the dead as easily as if rousing someone from slumber. And as a dad of four kids, I would tell you that's actually probably easier for Jesus than it is for me to wake my kids up when they're sleeping. You ever tried that? Right? Some of you ladies look at your husbands like, oh, I know. It's hard, right? But think about that. As easy as it is to, hey, wake up! That's how easy it is for Jesus to raise someone from the dead. Because he is all-powerful as God. That is how easy it is for Jesus to save your soul from eternal damnation through faith in himself. Only Jesus has the power to do that as the incarnate word. But Jesus does not leave his disciples in their confused state. He very plainly tells them in verse 16, Lazarus is dead. And this is, again, an incredible display of Jesus' omniscience. He is a day's travel away, and he already knows this. He knows when he died. He knows how long he's been dead. And then we read this. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. We think, wow, what does that mean, right? But notice again what Jesus is talking about here. He's not glad that, that Lazarus went through sickness and illness and death. He's glad for the coming sign for the sake of his disciples. And we're going to see in the coming weeks Jesus' love and care for his friends. That he's been touched by our infirmities and hardships. That he shows compassion on us. But Jesus also takes great interest in our faith and belief in him. Jesus states here that raising Lazarus from the dead will do far more for the faith of the disciples and the glory of God than, some, than him just healing him. That's what Jesus is saying here. Could Jesus have healed Lazarus from afar? Well, absolutely. But Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Why? That you may believe. And there's the theme of John again, isn't it? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, this will do far more for your belief in me as the Son of God than anything else. And in that, God will be glorified. Jesus continued to work in the hearts and lives of these men who committed themselves to following him. He knew they still needed to see the full picture of why he came. And as he prepared for his own death and resurrection, he would give them a sign to prove his power over even death itself. 
He had raised others in the past, and they had seen it. Now he would do it once again. And so he calls for them to begin the journey to Bethany. And as we close this portion of this chapter today in verse 16, we see what I call devoted cynicism. Because we read in verse 16, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Right? You can just almost hear Eeyore, right? If you're familiar with that. At Jesus' words, you know, John is recording for us the feedback from one of the twelve. Here we have this one named Thomas. Now, many people today refer to him as Doubting Thomas. I have a brother named Thomas. I called him that my entire life, right? Because of his failure to believe in Jesus' resurrection. His name actually means twin. And it really makes us wonder, what was it like to be the twin brother or sister of this guy who was one of the apostles, right? He speaks up, showing us both his negative pessimism and his astounding dedication to Jesus. He believed that such a trip was going to end in death, that Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were not safe for Jesus at this time. That was his firm belief. But let us also note, he was unwilling to stay behind. (laughs) He's like, yeah, he's going to die, but I ain't staying here. He He was very despondent, but he was still devoted. He could only see one outcome, but yet he was willing to go. Some of us could use a little bit more of that devotion in our lives, could we not? If the going gets tough and the road gets dark, or frankly, if following Jesus just seems inconvenient at the present moment, we are very prone to turn aside. We may not be so morose, but we are flighty. And the life of a disciple is one of deep devotion. It is commitment to Jesus Christ who is so deeply committed to us. And there can also be a resolved confidence that if we walk with Jesus, we can face whatever lies ahead with his help and his strength. And so, this band sets out on their journey. And next time, we'll see the events surrounding Jesus' arrival there in Bethany. But today, may we see the purposes of God to glorify himself in all things. And the preparations he makes in order to display that glory. Because of God's glory is promised and promoted in all things. I can trust and follow God no matter what I face. God's glory is preeminent in all the earth. It is above everything else. Everything will hear that we see and the things we don't see. They were all made by God. Everything here exists because of God. And even if you refuse to acknowledge God, he still shows you his grace and he will still be glorified above all. Everything works together in his perfect plan and nothing will deter or derail that plan. Even the things you and I may consider bad, those fit into his perfect plan and his sovereign will. God wants to glorify himself in your life through your personal salvation. You and I, we're born sinners. We have nothing good in us. 
and have no hope of getting to heaven without Jesus' work in our lives. Jesus came to redeem you. He came to save you from yourself and your sin, and he's come to accomplish the glorious purposes of God in your life through the salvation of your soul. And I implore you again that if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day. He would regenerate you and make you new in himself. And if you are his disciple, God is worthy of your entire devotion. More than this, he demands that devotion in your life. Should he expect anything less? And I would argue the answer is no. The glory of God must be the theme of our lives today and every day. And so whatever you're facing in your life, understand that you can face it with confidence in your God. You can face it with rest and hope in Him. And you can seek God's glory in it all because that's God's overwhelming pursuit. The lives of God's children are to be consumed with God's glory. And if you claim to be God's child and you care little about His preeminent glory... My friend, you will find the disciples' life very hard indeed. Because this life isn't about us. It's all about him. May we see him for who he is. Trust him above all else and give him all the glory that he is owed.